This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... When it was clear that Herat and Kandahar would fall, I think that's when everyone realised that this was happening very, very quickly. We as international community, we need to make sure that regardless who is government, that we can be present on the ground and assist the people in need. I do think Western governments will want to make sure that their aid is channeled through legitimate NGOs and not through the government. The Taliban has had a game plan. They know how aid agencies operate. They know that they need a certain level of aid to continue. Aid assistance goes first to the beneficiaries, to the local people. And it's what we need to put at the heart of our conversation and our advocacy. In terms of the UN, I think we want to take advantage of the nice words that are coming from the Taliban and say, okay, if you're saying this, let's, you know, walk the walk too. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome again to Inside Geneva. It's me, Imogen Folks. Hello. And Daniel Warner. Hi. We're going to talk about the topic, of course, today. It is Afghanistan. What's international humanitarian Geneva thinking about? We've got a very interesting discussion with some key players later in the program. But first, though, Danny, me and you were planning a completely different program today. But instead, we've cleared the desks and are couldn't talk about Afghanistan because of these incredible, but were they surprising, events in Afghanistan. When you watched what was unfolding, what were you thinking? Well, I'm of a certain generation, Imogen. It's, is this Saigon all over again? Is this 1975? You see the helicopters and you're thinking, oh, no, 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 no. How could we do the same mistakes over again so many years later? So my first reaction obviously was panic about the people there, tragedy, but again, We've seen this before in many respects, and no lessons learned by the United States. Yes, that was a bit my my journalist's uh, instinct as well. And interestingly, all the journalists were saying this could be a Saigon moment, so much so that some media outlets even had to explain to their younger audiences what a Saigon moment was. In Geneva, of course, there is a huge community at the United Nations, at the International Committee of the Red Cross, who are present in Afghanistan and have been for decades. I was talking just before the fall of Kabul to Robert Mardini, who's the Director General of the ICRC. He reminded me just what the needs in Afghanistan are. Uh, The hospitals we are supporting have treated, uh, since the 1st of August, 4,000 weapon-wounded civilians and Afghans in in the various hospitals uh, that we are supporting. And all this is happening against the backdrop of an already dire humanitarian situation. I mean, let's not forget that Afghanistan was uh, sadly known to be the deadliest place on earth to be a civilian, where over the past years, uh, 
50% of those civilians were, were women and children, uh, where um, uh, infrastructure, hospitals, uh, water supply, electricity supply uh, is, uh, uh, is struggling for the civilian population, where uh, unemployment and the consequences of COVID-19 also came uh, on top of uh, many other challenges. Uh, uh, so uh, a very, very worrying situation for, for civilians. Danny, a tragedy, surely, if those humanitarian workers have to leave as well. I mean, that's the problem of uh, all humanitarian work. You cannot go into a country unless the country agrees to let you in. And if the humanitarian workers, A, either are not let in or B, are let in but are under danger for their own survival, it poses certain ethical questions for the humanitarian organizations, which are terrible. So these are decisions whether the organizations stay to be helpful or whether they put their workers at risk. Uh, not simple decisions at all. Well, here's an interesting thing. This week also in Geneva, we had the usual UN briefing and we had direct from Afghanistan, UNICEF's Director of Emergency Operations, Mustafa Mesaud. Now, he said, interestingly, the Taliban have already appointed a liaison officer to work with humanitarian agencies. He said they'd already been round to see him and that he'd been quite heartened. He cautiously optimistic was the word he used to hear that, that they had said to his female health workers, you're continuing working. We expect you to come to work. However, what he also said about other parts of Afghanistan was this. The stand of the Taliban is more or less the same, but we, we've seen um, small differences, especially in terms of um, girls' education. Uh, there are area, part of the country, where they still, they told us that they're waiting for guidance from um, their leadership, religious and, and political. And in other uh, places, they actually um, said that they want to they wanna see um, girls' education and school up and, um, up and running. That, again, is going to be a dilemma, isn't it? If an organization like UNICEF, if the optimism proves to be unfounded, that an organization like UNICEF, which supports schools, ends up supporting schools where girls can't go. I mean, this is the general problem of the legitimacy of the Taliban. When the Taliban were in power in 1996 and 2001, they carried out atrocities, didn't let girls to school. There were beheadings and other kinds of things. Do we accept them now as the legitimate government of Afghanistan? And do we deal with them as we would deal with all other legitimate governments? To me, this is a huge problem. And can we forget the atrocities, the human rights violations that they carried out before? And how do we know that they're going to transform themselves into a legitimate human rights respecting government? These are the questions about the future. And these are questions, in fact, which I put to, I got a little panel together representing humanitarian organizations, human rights, the media. So I talked to Marie Lequin, who is of Geneva Call. She's the Eurasia director. They support women in Afghanistan working in outreach programs, violence reduction programs. Ken Roth, 
Executive Director of Human Rights Watch. And journalist Ermin Loy, he works for the New Humanitarian, the agency that focuses really on humanitarian issues. And his he is Asia editor. Let's have a listen to what they say. I asked them first, Marie, first of all, whether they found, as politicians seem to have found, the rapid fall of Afghanistan to be a surprise. I wouldn't say that it was such of a surprise because we we knew that, you know, the the international forces withdrawal had been announced and negotiated for a while. We had some discussions and we did some advocacy to make sure that this would be accompanied by protection measures for the civilians. Uh, So we did some advocacy among all the the parties to the conflict to ensure this. So I would say it's a semi-surprise. I think things happen quicker, but it was among the scenarios we we had in mind. Erwin and then Ken, I kind of want to ask you the same thing. What was your reaction, Erwin, to the events unfolding over the last few days. You talk regularly to the humanitarian community. What were you thinking? I was thinking it was happening extremely fast, but I think that that was what was on everyone's mind. That was certainly what was on the minds of the people I was speaking with. You know, I think everyone who who works in any sector involving Afghanistan had various versions of this. I was preparing some sort of piece basically a week before, um, having some initial conversations with a few people that changed, you know, with each day, like, oh, I have to update this, obviously. And then, you know, when when it was clear that Herat and Kandahar would fall, I think that's when everyone realized that this was happening very, very quickly. And even then, I think people were telling me that, oh, well, there could be still a few weeks. So even then, I think people just didn't realize it would be that quick. So I think I I was just trying to work out the speed of how this had happened. What about you, Ken? Human Rights Watch. Certainly out of Geneva, I heard many different organizations, both humanitarian and dedicated to human rights, expressing, sometimes off the record, but real concern about the consequences of this withdrawal. I think, you know, most people had major questions about the capacity of the Afghan military to sustain itself without international troops. And so, you know, the fact that the government fell, I don't think you could call that surprising at all. It was, you know, faster than probably most people anticipated. But if you look at it from the perspective of, you know, an Afghan soldier on the front line, corrupt commanders, you know, siphoning off many of the funds that they need for food, for ammunition, they know that they're undersupplied. They all have to ask themselves, you know, why am I going to risk my life for this government that's just, you know, at best weeks away from toppling? From that perspective, it's hard to be surprised that so many of them just cut a deal and said, you know, no, I'm, I'm not going to risk my life at this stage just to, to stem the inevitable. Um, I'll, you know, try to get the best deal I can. I'll try to, you know, hand in my, my, my weapons and try to blend in with the population. So there's a certain momentum once it begins, you know, as Erwin, Erwin mentions, you know, once, once the major cities of Iran and Kandahar fall, um, it's just a matter of time. Erwin, just coming back to you, Ken pointed out that this would happen. Nevertheless, the aid agencies could work with the Afghan government. They were working with the Afghan government. We've heard from the big UN aid agencies, we've heard from the International Committee of the Red Cross, that they are committed to staying. How realistic 
do you think that is? Is it too soon to say? We know that the situation is very fluid, obviously. Oh, I think it's it's extremely realistic in the short term. You know, obviously, I think the, the Taliban has had a game plan. They know how aid agencies operate. They know that they need a certain level of aid to continue. Is there currency? How is the economy going to work? All of that is, a, is an issue. I think the problem is, what does that mean in practice? And how, how will it all work? How will all the negotiations work? What compromises will need to be made? And you know, what I'm looking out for is the local aid workers, the Afghan staff. I think you have these rules and regulations from the aid community of how things are supposed to work. I don't think it always works that way on the ground. And there's there are lots of there's a lot of pressure to compromise, I think, and that will be very difficult. You know, in terms of staying and delivering, I think, you know, that's it's not easy, of course, but it's easy to say. And I think right now it, I don't think there's any reason why they can't. But, you know, going forward, how, how will the political situation work? How will the donor situation work? Pretty confident that donors will fund humanitarian aid as a stopgap measure for defunding development aid directly to the Afghan government, which is now the Taliban. But how will that work in practice for the long term? I don't know how sustainable that will be. Marie, can I put that to you? Um, you have already told us you are committed to continue working. Are you concerned about having to make compromises, change your work in any way? Um, I agree with what uh, Irvin was saying. You know, we need, you know, to adapt our work. We need to rethink it. I don't see the international community stopping its support, you know, to, to aid organization. I don't see that happening. But concretely speaking, we, we need to keep in mind that we face one obstacle. The sanction regimes which are in place would become an obstacle if they keep increasing if there are more and more sanctions, we won't be able to operate in Afghanistan. So I think it's very important that the international community keeps in mind that aid assistance goes first to the beneficiaries, to the local people. And it's what we need to put at the heart of our conversation and our advocacy. Can those withdrawing governments actually have a huge moral responsibility don't they, to continue their humanitarian support and support for human rights? Obviously, they should be welcoming to people who are fleeing the persecution of the Taliban. You know, there is um, a major airlift that has been underway. But at the same time, you get, you know, like French President Macron saying you've got to, you know, avoid a huge influx into Europe. So there's a, you know, a bit of schizophrenia here. This is not the time to talk about you know, raising barriers and um, irregular migration and all these sorts of code words that um, are meant to say that no, governments are not going to do what it takes to provide a safe refuge for people who are fleeing persecution that was very much a product of, of this abrupt departure. With respect to humanitarian assistance, I mean, I, I agree that I, I don't see Western governments abandoning that. And indeed, there, I think, is an incentive on the part of the Taliban to allow humanitarian workers to continue to operate with relative freedom, because I do think Western governments will want to make sure that their aid is channeled through legitimate NGOs and not through the government. But I think there, you know, there's a common interest in not causing the Afghan people to suffer more. Now, with respect to human rights, here's an area where you know, there's much that can be done. You know, as we're speaking, the UN Human Rights Council is meeting in a special session on Afghanistan. And the big issue is, you know, what kind of special monitoring mechanism and accountability mechanism will be established 
really both to deal with the atrocities of the past, but then also to look forward, to try to serve as a deterrent for future atrocities by now the Taliban. And, you know, what we fear is that they will settle for just, you know, more business as usual, you know, asking the high commissioner for human rights to report back in six months or something like that, rather than establish some kind of dedicated fact-finding mechanism that really has the capacity to ramp up. It's not pie in the sky to think that that could happen. Even the Taliban has an interest in accountability. If you look at some of their early statements, they have put out orders that, you know, police records should not be destroyed. Now, why are they saying that? Because they were the victims of many past atrocities by the Afghan government. And so this is an opportunity in a way to say that, you know, okay, Taliban, you have an interest in seeing justice. You are saying the right things about the future. We have to take all those vows with a big grain of salt, but we will try to take you at your word and let's build a mechanism that um, you say you want to comply with anyhow, but which would serve your interests in addressing accountability for the past. Erwin, what do you think about that? I mean, we've seen pictures from Kabul with people terrified gathered outside the airport. I mean, do you think we've had some statements from UN special rapporteurs? We have this discussion now at the UN Human Rights Council about some kind of watching eye or investigative mission. Is this kind of thing helpful, meaningful on the ground in Afghanistan right now? Uh, I'm not sure if I can if I can answer that. Um, when I was just jotting down some notes listening to, to Ken, just, I just find it so interesting, so astounding that the, the idea that there could possibly be more accountability, that the possibility exists under the you know a new Taliban regime than under the previous government. I think it's it's pretty astounding. You know, I think Human Rights Watch has called on on, on the Taliban some of the accusations in terms of um, reprisals and what's going on. You know, blocking people coming from the airport. You know, I wonder how the Taliban would respond to those sorts of accusations and whether that would you know cloud any sort of you know their own decisions into what they could or could not get behind. Ken, you had your hand up there. I think you want to come into what Irvin said. I think, you know, we have to recognize that until now, many of the major powers, foremost the U.S. government, was opposed to accountability efforts in Afghanistan because of U.S. complicity. So, you know, the U.S. has actively fought the possibility of an international criminal court investigation into torture in Afghanistan for fear that, you know, CIA agents would be implicated. You know, the irony is that now the Western powers are more willing to look at a an accountability mechanism, they wanted to look at only Taliban abuses. But it, you know, it doesn't or at least shouldn't work that way. You shouldn't have partisan investigative mechanisms. You should look at both sides. And so, you know, suddenly the, the resistance of the West has weakened. I don't, you know, have great hopes for the Taliban. I, I am a bit grasping at straws here, but there is this genuine interest in accountability for the crimes against them. And they, you know, we all see that they're doing a PR effort right now. They're trying to put on a nice friendly face. There is a, you know, clearly a disconnect between these nice statements at the press conference versus the behavior of at least some Taliban militants on the ground. We don't really know how this plays out. You know, we don't know whether, you know, has the Taliban made the calculation that Afghanistan has changed in the last 20 years, that it is more educated, that people have gotten used to these rights, that they have to kind of um, change themselves a little bit, or they're going to have constant trouble of the sort we've seen with the protests just recently. Or is this just a pretty face they're putting on while everybody's paying attention and it's going to be back to the same old brutal Taliban that we knew so well from 20 years ago? It's hard to say this, but, you know, in terms of the UN, I think we want to take advantage 
of the nice words that are coming from the Taliban and say, okay, if you're saying this, let's, you know, walk the walk too, endorse a, a serious accountability mechanism. I don't have high hopes, but um, this is, you know, one of the goals. Marie, can I ask you what you, you think about this angle of the discussion? As a non-governmental organization with Afghan partners on the ground in Afghanistan, do you see this as hopeful that the UN is, is trying to, at the very least, keep a very close eye on human rights in Afghanistan? I think it's a global responsibility. It's not only the UN, it's not only international organization. I think, you know, at regional level, at local level, international level, I think it's a global responsibility. Geneva Call is not, you know, a, a monitoring organization. We don't write reports on a human rights violation. We use what we see on the ground, you know, to negotiate for change, you know, with the perpetrators, you know, of this violation. So I think it's important that we let, you know, organizations which have that experience to do this work because we see many violations. We see a lot of reports on the social media which are not always verified and checked. And this contributes, you know, to fueling, uh, you know, hatred and, and violence. So I think we need to take this very cautiously. And I think it's also important to, to also talk to communities, to listen to communities, to how they feel and, and their feeling of safety and how they perceive, you know, the role of the international community, be on the humanitarian side or be on the, you know, military, military aspects. When I was last in, uh, in Afghanistan a few weeks ago, I mean, many people were saying, you know, military international presence attracts threat on us because, you know, there are collateral damage, there are military response to this presence. So they had concerns about, you know, this presence. So I think it's very important to also listen to the concern of the community being in the middle, you know. All this is imposed on them. And I don't think we listen to them enough. They don't choose to be in that situation. One day they are controlled by A, one day by B. And I think it's very important we consider their feeling of safety. And I think now, I think we need to listen to them and to see how we, we, we can better address that concern. We are coming almost to the end of this discussion, but I want to ask you each almost for a kind of closing thought. I thought what Marie was saying there about our perception versus the perception of people who actually live in Afghanistan and will live there all their lives. In the media now, we are seeing a kind of consensus around, well, withdrawal was always inevitable, but this withdrawal is a complete disaster. It does feel a bit like a pretty pivotal moment, actually, for Western foreign policy. Erwin, to you first. Are there lessons to be learned from this? Uh, I think there definitely are. I, I obviously don't have the answers. I think what will be challenged a bit more in the future, and I think this will be one of many catalysts for it, is taking a decolonized approach to foreign policy. And that's kind of hard to do just by definition, you know, foreign policy. But if we're always looking at, at Afghanistan from a matter of where did American policy fail? Where could a Russian policy come in here? Where is Pakistan? You know, if you're always looking at it from that perspective, then obviously inherently the Afghan position is missing. 
And, you know, that's really easy to say from here because I don't have the answers. What does that mean in practice? I don't know. But I think there is a movement in foreign policy circles to rethink foreign policy. What that means in practice is, you know, that's someone a lot smarter than me (laughs) has to come up with the answers. Ken Roth, lessons learned here? The Western presence in Afghanistan was overwhelmingly military, even though there was, you know, an important humanitarian presence, an important um, political presence. But the core of it, holding the government together, was military. And that has limits. And I think that it's rare to find a military-led effort that yields a democracy. Now, you can go back and say, well, you know, maybe Germany after the Second World War, maybe Japan. But if you look at sort of the recent efforts like that, I mean, maybe the most successful was Bosnia, but that wasn't with a heavy on-the-ground presence. It was more just a matter of, you know, stopping Serbian forces. Certainly, Libya was a disaster. Iraq was awful. And so I I think we do have to recognize that if the aim is to build democracy, and I don't think that was the dominant aim in Afghanistan, it has to come from protecting civic space, building civil society from the ground up. And even though that was present in Afghanistan, the last 20 years saw this remarkable flourishing of civic society, of journalism, of, of women exercising their rights. But it was still within a dominant military paradigm, which then crumbled when the military pulled out. And I think we all hope that Afghanistan maybe has changed enough that the Taliban can't just turn the clock back 20 years, but we just don't know. And it's quite possible that they're going to just try to you know, brutalize their way back to where we were back in 2001. Marie, can I come to you last and ask you as well, are there lessons to be learned from this? But also just for you a little bit, speculation to the future. Where do you hope to be, you and your colleagues on the ground in Afghanistan in six months' time? On the first part of, uh, of your questions, we are humanitarian organizations, so it's difficult for me to comment, you know, on the military and foreign policy element. What I would like to say is that if, you know, international humanitarian law, you know, could be better enforced by all parties to the conflict, be local, national or international, we need to make sure that IHL, you know, better governs the conduct of hostilities. So that would be my, my comment on the first question. How we see ourselves in six months, I think uh, we need to be positive and we need to show to the Afghan people that we are committed to keep working in the countries and we need to work in the country. And I think we need to talk to everyone. We need to be engaged with everyone regardless, you know, of their uh, political, ethnic or religious uh, background. I think our approach needs to be inclusive. And um, I'm positive that dialogue will be possible. And we as international community, we need to make sure that regardless who is government, that we can be present on the ground and assist the people in need who are not choosing in the end who is the controlling force. So that was Marie Lecave, uh, Geneva Call, ending there our little discussion along with uh, Ken Roth of Human Rights Watch and Erwin Loy of the New Humanitarian. Danny, I thought they had really interesting perspectives, all ones which are also going to be focused on here in Geneva. Are they underestimating the challenges that lie ahead? Do you think the humanitarian community, obviously they want to keep working, but 
Yeah, I think there are differences between the humanitarian community and human rights, which are important and should be pointed out. The humanitarians must try to be there, uh, whatever the political situation. They're supposed to be neutral. They're supposed to help the civilian population. Ken Roth, on the other hand, who said that the Taliban are putting on a pretty face for the moment, he has to condemn human rights violations. He has to condemn the Taliban for what they did from 1996 to 2001. And he has to say, we cannot accept certain things that they may be doing. So there's a difference between the humanitarians, who I think have to be larger in their tolerance and the human rights community. I thought the point that Erwin Loy made as a, as a journalist, saying, yes, the aid agencies are going to stay and they're cautiously optimistic, but down the line, what are the compromises they're going to have to make to continue working? That is a worry, isn't it? Does it mean they won't be able to work in domestic violence? Will they not be able to support women? Well, I mean, one of the problems is, as, as I've mentioned, is the, the, the aid workers themselves could be in trouble. I mean, if there are female aid, aid workers in Afghanistan and the Taliban continues their policies of the past, that could be dangerous for those aid workers. And let's not forget, most of the aid workers working with the UN are actually local. There are currently around 300 international UN staff in the whole of the country, and the rest are local partners. So these are people, some of them I think will be ones who are desperately thinking, I need to leave now, concerned that it will be dangerous for them. Yeah, again, the Taliban have said that there will be no vengeance. I mean, that's the question. A, will they be legitimate as a governing force? And B, will there be reprisals against those people who work with the government and the international community before? And I think there are no simple answers because, as has been said, the Taliban are giving mixed signals now. But, but they do have spokespeople who are saying there will be no vengeance we will try to rule as a legitimate government. That's to be seen. And I think the international community in Geneva is hopeful, but I think cautiously optimistic is a nice phrase for where we should be now. Yep. And I think this is what also UN Human Rights, I heard this week, basically saying, great words, walk the talk now, please. Your words will be judged by your actions. Um, bigger picture, Danny, which, as you heard, I did put a bit to my panelists there, but you are really the person I wanted to ask this off. If, if we broaden this out from the humanitarian Geneva angle, this event to me feels like something that is going to go into the history books as a defining moment, the kind of last miserable hurrah of Western foreign policy. I mean, the, the thing where NATO can intervene and attempt some form of goodness knows what, eradication of terrorism followed by nation building. No, I think that's exactly the point. The United States went into Afghanistan 2001 as a punishment for September 11th. They said that they would get the people responsible after that for over 20 years. It's been a question, question of nation building and especially nation building uh, militarily. And I think that's the point that this has to be the lesson learned. Uh, so much money spent, so many years spent, and it just hasn't worked. So in your sense, I hope this is the end of this kind of nation building. And what we learned, or some of us learned at the Vietnam War, 
the question of winning the hearts and minds of people is not simple. And Afghanistan is a perfect example, as Vietnam was. And in the middle of it all, as Marie Le Quin pointed out in that discussion, there are the civilians who feel with their constant struggle for survival, with that humanitarian crisis, which is ongoing, that they have little say in who rules them, who's in charge. But we could be going back to a civil conflict. On the one hand, some people are heartened that there appears to be some opposition to the Taliban. But if this deteriorates into a massive struggle for the country, it is again going to be the civilians, the women, the children, suffering the most. Exactly. When we talk about Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, the British, the Soviet, and now the American and the Western, we often forget that it's the people within the country who suffered during these wars. The problem is, what is the Western world or other people supposed to do if they watch a civil war there? And perhaps the lesson learned here is that the hubris and the arrogance to say that we can come in and solve the problem, stop the war, is not something as simple as we thought. And on that note, I think that brings us to the end of this edition of Inside Geneva. Danny, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks to all my panelists there, Marie Lequin, Geneva Call, Ken Roth, Human Rights Watch, and Irvin Loy, Asia editor with The New Humanitarian. You can, in fact, read an in-depth article from him on the prospects for humanitarian work in Afghanistan. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening. reminder you've been listening to Inside Geneva from Swiss Info. You can hear more by going to our website swissinfo.ch including several episodes which have charted our path through the pandemic over the last year. We explore other key humanitarian challenges too from the future of the United Nations to the war in Syria to look at the history behind the Ottawa Convention Against Landmines and of course you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you again for listening. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time. Listener.